Hi everyone, welcome to the first episode of A Dark and Bloody Ground. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host Bruce, and this is a podcast about the folklore, the paranormal, and true crime stories of the Ohio River Valley. Before we get started, if you like what you hear, go leave a rating and review wherever you found this podcast, be it Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and so forth, anywhere you may find it. I really appreciate it. So, what is the Ohio River Valley? It's something you've probably heard all of your life, most often in weather reports, especially if you're from Kentucky, southern Indiana, or southern Ohio. It's a vague, nebulous term, and as far as I can find, there's no hard, definite boundaries for what constitutes the Ohio Valley. Some sources have the Ohio River Valley and the Ohio River Basin as one and the same, and that's a massive section of the country. That includes almost all of Kentucky, Tennessee, Ohio, Indiana, West Virginia, large parts of Illinois and Pennsylvania, and small parts of Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, North Carolina, Virginia, and New York. But for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to narrow that down to just the states that touch the Ohio River. That is still a very large area for the podcast to cover, and it's home to so many great stories. Some of the richest folklore and ghost stories in the United States come from this area. And it's awash in the paranormal. Waverly Hills, residing in my hometown of Louisville, is supposedly one of the most haunted places in the country. West Virginia is where the Mothman prophecies took place. Hell, I went on a road trip through West Virginia last week and passed through three different towns that have their own famous monster. If you want to see Bigfoot, there's no need to go to the Pacific Northwest, just go to Ohio or Pennsylvania. They have thousands of reports between the two. And the Ohio Valley is the setting for some of the wildest true crime stories you'll ever hear. So we're going to cover all that and more on this show. One of the first things I want to talk about, though, is the name of the podcast. It's a foundational piece of folklore for the region. If you grew up in Kentucky, you've probably heard at one time or another that the name of the state comes from a Cherokee phrase meaning a dark and bloody ground. The story goes something like this. Kentucky, just before the Revolutionary War, was uninhabited land. Native American nations in the region used it as both a hunting ground and as a battlefield to settle conflict. However, no one actually lived here. When the Cherokees sold their rights to what would become Kentucky and West Virginia to Europeans in 1775, Cherokee war chief Dragon Canoe told the colonists that they were purchasing a dark and bloody ground owing to the area's history as a place of conflict. He said this in his own tongue, calling it Kentucky, or something similar. At least, that's what a lot of us were taught in schools. It's repeated in dozens and dozens of books. Of course, as you can guess by now by the fact I'm telling you this, it's mostly myth. Kentucky wasn't unsettled land prior to colonization. Many tribes of Native American nations made their homes in what would become Kentucky, or had treaties to use the land. The Iroquois, Cherokee, Shawnee, and Chickasaw were just some of the tribes that made their home here. A 1736 French census remarked one Shawnee town contained upwards of a thousand people. While that may sound small by today's standards, by comparison, New York and Philadelphia at the time had populations of 8,500. In the aftermath of Pontiac's War and Lord Dunmore's War, the largest battle of which took place in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, home of the Mothman. 
The Iroquois and Shawnee were forced to cede their lands in what would become Kentucky to the Europeans. Soon after, other tribes in the region were pressured to sell their holdings as well. It was under these conditions that in 1775, Cherokee leaders met with land speculators from Virginia in what would become Tennessee to negotiate the sale of their land. Prominent figures such as Daniel Boone and Dragon Canoe attended the meetings. But Dragon Canoe wasn't there to sell the land. He was there to persuade other Cherokee leaders to reject the sale. He resented the encroachment of the Europeans, and rightly so. Though the sale was agreed to, Dragon Canoe refused to recognize the colonists' new claim to the land. Before he left, he told the Europeans in attendance that they were inheriting what would become a dark and bloody ground. It wasn't a description of the region, it was a warning. Conflict was guaranteed if Europeans colonized lands west of the Appalachians. And it was a warning that held true. Beginning in 1776, Dragon Canoe led raids against the colonists, sparking the Cherokee-American War, a series of raids and pitched battles throughout Tennessee, Kentucky, and the Old Southwest. It was a conflict that lasted almost 20 years. Dragon Canoe is a fascinating figure, and one that's little talked about today. So I'm going to have to do an episode just on him sometime in the future. By the time Kentucky became a state in 1792, the myth that the name means a dark and bloody ground had already taken root along with the belief that the land had always been unoccupied. And this was while the Cherokee-American War was still being fought. These myths may have actually been promoted by land speculators. The idea that the land was uninhabited may have been a lot more palatable to prospective buyers than the truth that it was conquered land, the original inhabitants forced out and still fighting for it. The stories persist to this day. In reality, no one is sure where the name comes from. There are a lot of terms in the languages of the natives that occupy the region that sound similar to Kentucky. Maps from as far back as the 1750s named the region Kentucky, but with an E instead of a Y. It's easy to understand why the stories persist. A dark and bloody ground is a far more badass name than meadow or prairie land or river mouth. And it makes the place sound a lot more valuable. It's something worth being fought over. So, the story might not be true, but how could I not name a podcast about the region and its stories a dark and bloody ground? I had to. It's a perfect name. And that's as probably as much debunking as this show will do. Of course, now that I've said that, I'll probably contradict myself every other episode. When we're discussing a true crime case, though, I'll do all I can to make sure the information is accurate. But when we're talking about folklore or the paranormal, but when we're talking about folklore or the paranormal, it's not so important to me whether or not a story is true, but rather if it's a good story. You can judge for yourself whether you believe something or not, or whether you think something is true or not. What's important to me are the stories themselves the fact that they've been spread through word of mouth or through the media, and have become part of our cultural landscape. It may sound odd to lump the paranormal in with folklore, but these ghost stories, these UFOs and monster sightings, not only have they become integrated into modern folklore, but they serve the basis of the folklore for the generations to come. So, speaking of stories, 
I want to share two with you on this episode. One is one of my favorite bits of folklore, and the other is from a letter by my soon-to-be mother-in-law about conjure magic in West Virginia, read by my fiancé. Here's Grace. This is a story told to me by my mother. It is a story told to her by my great-grandmother. Now, Texie, my great-grandmother, was a real character. Later in life, she drank and gambled and partied and told fantastic stories that no one believed. But she was very entertaining and lived a long and adventurous life. If the only source for this story were Texie, I would not believe it. But her daughter, my grandmother, was a very truthful, reliable person. So what she said could be relied upon. And she was old enough to remember this happening and said it was true. So I believe this story. My great-grandparents were from West Virginia. At the time of this event, he worked as a chef for the railroad, and they lived in a small town in West Virginia that was along the train route. Texie had older children, one being my grandmother, and had recently had another baby. Not too long after it was born, the baby began to cry constantly. After trying the usual remedies, she took him to a doctor who suggested other medicines and tonics, but nothing helped. The baby continued to cry constantly. Over the days, the baby was wasting away, not eating or sleeping. Now at this time in West Virginia, probably around 1910 to 1915, you might be able to seek help if there happened to be a town with a doctor in it that was close enough. But every community, no matter how far back in the hills, had a witch doctor. I don't know if... That was what they called themselves, but that is the term Texie used. Someone who could help with spells, curses, and evil spirits. Texie was desperate to save her baby and knew it was time to seek out the witch doctor. When she did, this woman told her that someone had put a curse on her baby. She told Texie to follow her instructions very closely in order to break the curse. This is what she told Texie. Tie a string to the toe of your baby. When you do that, whoever placed the curse will become as miserable as the baby had been. This person will come and try to borrow something from you. Do not let them borrow anything or allow them to enter your house for as long as the string remains tied to the toe of the baby. When the string falls off, the curse will be lifted. Texie did as the witch doctor instructed. She tied a string to the toe of her baby. The baby immediately stopped crying. That same day, there was a knock at the door. It was an old lady who lived on her street. She knew who she was, but had never had any dealings with her. The old lady asked to borrow a cup of sugar. Texie said she did not have any to spare and closed the door. For the next week, the old lady came back again and again, asking to borrow various things, such as butter and eggs. Each time, she seemed more miserable and desperate. I do not know all the things she asked for, but Texie said that at the end of the week, the old lady came back one last time and asked to borrow a safety pin. She was clearly very miserable. Texie once more turned her away. The string fell off her baby that day. The baby was fine and continued in good health. The old lady did not return to ask to borrow anything after that. Within a few weeks, the old lady moved away. There was once this rambling man, the kind that would stay out at all hours, 
doing things he shouldn't be doing, drinking, whoring, gambling, neglecting his poor wife at home and keeping her up all night with worry and grief. One night, stumbling home after getting his fill of wickedness, he decided to take a shortcut through a cemetery. He wasn't completely without a heart, and in his own sorry way did love his wife, so he took this shortcut to get home to her sooner. Now, this was in the old days, before electric lights came to the hills of Kentucky. And the hills get darker than just about any place around, reaching up into the sky, blocking out the stars and the low moon. So, this was a deeper dark than we in the modern day have ever known. And this rambling man didn't have a lantern and could barely see the end of his outstretched hand. It may not have been the best idea to take a shortcut through the cemetery at night, but if he had been a smart man, well, we wouldn't have much of a story now. Since he couldn't see, he fell face first into a hole. The dirt was soft, but he landed hard. And somehow, it was even darker in the hole. Not able to see a thing, he felt his way around, trying to get his bearings. The walls of the hole were sheer, straight up and down. It was about eight feet long, and about three feet wide. He felt the edge of the hole, just above his head, at about six feet. Panic set in when he realized what had happened. He had fallen into a freshly dug grave, awaiting its occupant. He tried scrambling out, but his feet couldn't find purchase in the sides of the grave, and the edges would give, sending him right back down on his behind each time. Over and over again he tried to climb out, but the loose dirt would send him right back down to the bottom. Once exhaustion had taken over him, and once the drink had worn off, he finally came to his senses. The gravekeeper would be along in the morning, just before the funeral, and so he could help the rambling man out. His wife would worry, sure, but hey, she'd be happy to see him safe, and he'd have a great excuse for where he'd been all night. So, the rambling man huddled up in the corner, trying to keep himself warm in the encroaching chill of the growing night. A little bit later, another not-so-smart man was out making his wife worry. Like the rambling man, he decided to take a shortcut through the cemetery. And, like the rambling man, he took a face-first dive into that open grave. He also panicked, trying to scramble his way out. But each time the dirt gave, sending him right back down to the bottom. Over and over again he tried, growing more and more desperate. He yelled and he hollered and he hollered and he yelled for help. The gravestones echoed back his voice to him, as if the night were mocking him. Then, he heard a noise at the end of the grave. He froze, and slowly looked into the far corner. He could just barely see something. The shape of a man, crouching in the dark. Keep it down, I'm trying to sleep, the rambling man said. There ain't no getting out of this grave. That second man proved the rambling man wrong, cleared out of the grave in one leap, and ran screaming into the night. Thank you everyone for listening to this first episode of A Dark and Bloody Ground. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you come back next week. Next time, we're going to have a UFO case from 1950s Cincinnati, one of the strangest you'll probably ever hear. If you like the show, go leave a rating and review on whatever service you're using to listen. And share it. All that helps grow the audience, and that in turn will help grow the show. If you have a story that you'd like to share, or you have a comment, or whatever, 
you can email me at darkandbloodypodcast at gmail.com. The music you heard in this episode, the intro, outro, and the stingers are all by Hunter Quinn. Once again, thanks for listening, and have a good week.